end of the chapter, beginning at verse 19. And in verse 19, we read the following. Now, there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus. In his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, You received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. Now, in Luke chapter 16, a couple themes have been brought before us. The first theme is that really about stewardship, about money, about possessions. Uh, the chapter opens with the rich man, you'll remember, and the unrighteous manager. And here you have another story about a rich man and Lazarus. We were told in the first parable that uh, we are to make friends for the kingdom's sake with the things that God gives us in this world. The things that God gives us, we are to utilize uh, to make friends For the purpose of of the kingdom. Then you go on and you see that that thing continues when uh, we are told that uh, we are to be faithful in earthly stewardship. uh, That who's going to give you true riches in heaven if you're not faithful with what God is giving you in this life. After that, Jesus warns us that nobody can serve two masters. Uh, You're either going to love God or you're going to love this world, love the things of this world. And you have to choose. All of us have to choose. Young people, you have to choose. Are you going to follow Jesus Christ or are you going to follow the world? Are you going to love yourself and love pleasure and love money? 
and consume it all on yourself? Or are you going to love God and seek to be a steward of the things God gives you for the kingdom's sake and purposes? We have to choose. We can't try and serve both at the same time. One will win out over the other. Then Jesus went on, uh, or maybe I should say Luke uh, went on to say that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And we see the Pharisees as a negative example. They were not lovers of God as they professed themselves to be. They had the reputation of being lovers of God, you have to understand. But they themselves really weren't. They were very covetous people. And then we see that Luke then brings us here to Jesus' teaching, some of which were just snippets from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, pertaining to the Word of God. If we're to love God, we have to love God's Word. And uh, Jesus said that the Word of God was preached through the Law of Moses, through the prophets, and now by way of the Gospel. Up till John, you had the Old Covenant, John the Baptist, that is. Now we have Jesus Christ. And people are forcing their way into the kingdom as the good news of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and the uh, imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners is preached. And people are coming in and you don't have to be a religious person in order to receive that good news. And that's why he was saying, uh, don't they're, they're pressing in. Normally, we give way to those that we might consider uh, our superior. You know, the, we give way to the agent and we open the door for them. But. Here we find that the sinners are not supposed to wait on the Pharisees, but they are to strive in uh, through the narrow gate. And then we saw the word of God and how the word of God sets a standard for uh, marriage and how the Pharisees had distorted that. That was last week's message. Now, today we are looking at what is commonly called the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, We might call it rich man, poor man and the word of God. Um, And what I want to do is first I want to summarize uh, the parable for us. And then secondly, I want to make some uh, significant points from that. And then from those main points, I'm going to give you four significant points. And then from those points, I'm going to give you uh, at least four applications as well, time permitting. So let's first of all, just get a sense of the overall gist of the parable and, and what it is saying. Now, first of all, we have a wealthy man here who does not love God nor God's word. And yet we also have a very poor and suffering man who does know God and who loves God's word. Uh, Because we know that the poor man dies and goes to heaven and the rich man perishes and goes to hell. Now, it is not that the rich man went to hell because he was rich and the poor man went to heaven because he suffered enough in this world. That would be contrary to the gospel. Okay, the gospel is that whosoever should believe, rich or poor, and everybody in between, whosoever should believe in the word of God and trust in Jesus Christ from the heart, confess him with the mouth, Romans 10 says that person shall be Saved. That person shall have eternal life. So we need to understand that Lazarus went to heaven not on the basis of suffering, not on the basis of how poor he was, not on the basis how sick he was in this life and how miserable he was in this world. He went to heaven on the basis of faith in the Lord. Likewise, the rich man who had no faith in God 
And, and it's suggested here, I think, that if he had had faith in God, he would have helped Lazarus, who was laid at his gate. He would have, out of evangelical faith, out of evangelical obedience to the Lord, would have gone and helped uh, Lazarus, who was longing for the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. But he didn't do so. You get a sense that the wealthy man in this parable also knew Lazarus somehow personally. Because he calls him by name. He recognizes him. That's the man who was always at my gate. And it seems as though uh, he's recognized too. He was known to the family. That Lazarus be sent to my brothers. That the brothers would have known who Lazarus was when he was living in this world. So there was a sense of familiarity. And yet uh, there was no help for Lazarus. So Lazarus by faith. In the Lord goes to heaven. The wealthy man lacking faith and commitment to God and his word goes to hell. Now, while he is in hell, uh, the wealthy man begs for relief. The first petition that he gives to Father Abraham is that Lazarus might dip his finger in just a little bit of water and put just even a drop of water on, on the tongue. And we see Hell is a place of great suffering, is a great place of wrath and judgment, uh, often figured by even sometimes paradoxical language. Sometimes hell is described as a place of fire and burning. Sometimes hell is described as a place of great outer darkness. And you think, how can these two images go together, a place of great darkness and yet a place of, of great fire? Um, but all of these ways of communicating the terribleness of hell probably can never do full justice to the reality of it. That is, what is described, says R.C. Sproul, uh, is even worse than the description. Uh, and so this is a terrible place uh, which God in his mercy has saved us from by sending Jesus into the world for which we regularly ought to be thanking the Lord. J.I. Packer has said that if we as Christians are not regularly thanking the Lord for saving us from hell and giving us eternal life uh, in heaven, um, there is something deficient in our faith, something seriously wrong. And we need to check our foundations. If gratitude to God for saving us from this place of judgment is not something regular, I had a professor in seminary, a New Testament and a Greek professor of mine, whose son was found at the bottom of their swimming pool one day. And the paramedics came and rescued the child and by God's grace were able to bring him back to life. And every year the family celebrates the saving of that child and they go uh, to the, the fire department and uh, have a party uh, with the firemen uh, for what they did for their sons. And this was 25, 26, 27 years ago now. He's, he's, he's in his late 20s, uh, this young man is today. And in fact, the fireman who saved him is retiring this year. So this, this was his last year as a fireman. Uh, and uh, but it but it showed I think something of the gratitude of the family towards those that saved the life of their son. 
And uh, think how much more I want you to extrapolate from that to you have been saved from an eternity of judgment and misery and sorrow and grief. And, and the wrath of God being poured out uh, unmitigated. And with no relief. And so we, we ought to be all the more thankful for what God has done for us on a regular basis in Jesus Christ. Not just annually, but maybe even daily thanking the Lord. The problem is as sinners, we tend to forget what great things the Lord has done for us. And we become myopic on our life and our problems and the things that are stressing us and the things we need to do. And we lose perspective. This parable helps Cure that, doesn't it? So there is no comfort for the wealthy man in hell. The comfort is denied and it is told to the rich man. No, Lazarus cannot come. There is a great chasm between heaven and hell. And I don't know. I cannot explain to you how can could they see each other? I don't know. (laughs) But there's a great chasm between the two. And God prohibits uh, any transportation from one to the other. And so Lazarus may not go into hell to provide any relief. And so the rich man appeals to Father Abraham for then help for his brothers who are still living. And he does this, boys and girls, out of concern for his brothers, that his brothers not come to the same place in hell where he is. And so he asked that Father Abraham send Lazarus to go to his brothers. Now, the brothers presumably would have recognized who Lazarus was. And thus they would have been stunned if Lazarus was to show up on their door and knock or stand at the gate and knock. Send Lazarus to my father's place so he can tell my five brothers on the compound there that Uh, There is a terrible place called hell so that they will avoid it. Now, what's interesting here is the response. And I want to spend the remainder of my time on that. Because I think that is the main point of this parable really is at the end. And particularly the last sentence as it speaks to Christ. The response is, no, they have the Bible. They have the word of God. They have they have every they have what we saw Two weeks ago, they have the law of Moses and the prophets and everything in between the historical books and the poetic books. They have the Bible. They have the word of God. Now, what is the unbelieving rich man's response? Well, his response is to reject the Bible as sufficient. He says, no. Send Lazarus. That is, let them see a miracle. Let them see Lazarus come back. From the dead, and that will persuade them, and that will convince them. Now, many people have that view today. Some of your friends, some of your neighbors who may not be Christians, they have that view themselves. You you ask them, How come you don't believe in God? What would it take for you to believe in God? I remember listening to the famous debate at the University of California between Dr. Greg Bonson, who was a Christian apologist in the OPC. And Dr. Stein, who was a a sort of famous atheist uh, attorney, they had a debate at the University of California. And after the debate had finished, they had a Q&A where the students 
at the university could ask questions. One of the students from the audience asked Dr. Stein, the attorney, what would it take you to believe in God? And do you know what Dr. Stein's answer was? Dr. Stein said, if the chair on this stage would begin to levitate, I would believe that there is a God. That was his answer. Now, what's he asking for? He's asking for a sign. He's asking for a wonder, a miracle. He is saying that if he saw a chair begin to rise on its own, and there's nothing underneath it pushing it up, there's nothing above it pulling it up, there's no, so, so to speak, hocus pocus, chair is just levitating on its own. He said he would believe in God. Dr. Bonson had the right answer. He said, no, you would not. That even if this chair begins to rise and stays in the air for the rest of this program, you will not believe in God. And the reason you will not believe in God is because you will not believe God's word. God has already revealed himself to you in the Bible. He does not need to reveal himself to you in a levitating chair. And notice here that that is the very answer that Father Abraham says to the rich man. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear, that is, let the brothers hear Moses and the prophets. Let them hear and attend to the Bible. So oftentimes unbelievers are saying they want to see a sign from God, a miracle from God. That will be sufficient, they think, to give them faith. But no, what the Bible says is that if you do not have faith to trust in the word of God, in something that God has said, you won't trust in something that you could see God do. And this is we see this in scriptures, don't we? We see, for example, Jesus heals the man with the withered arm in church, in the synagogue. And yet the Pharisees go outside immediately, we're told by the gospel writers. Immediately. I mean, think about this. Church is dismissed. The benediction is given. They go outside. And the first thing they discuss among themselves is how they're going to kill Jesus. They just saw a miracle. They saw a man who had a withered arm. And it was completely restored and healed and made like new. The wonder of God, the power, miraculous work. And yet they will not believe. And the reason they won't believe is because they didn't listen. Well, excuse me. They didn't believe the Bible that was read in the synagogue service. Because the Bible that was read, whether it's from the law, whether it was from the prophets, whether it was from David, or whether it was from the historical books, Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, if they, they those books, as we saw two weeks ago, they point to Jesus. And if they won't believe those books about Jesus, when they see Jesus do a miracle, they still won't believe. Now, I'm going to make uh, four points here and then I want to make some applications uh, through this. Number one, what's the significance of of this parable? Four points of significance. Number one, I want you to see that the Bible, the word of God, is greater and more important and more valuable than money. The rich man obviously had a lot of money. But he had very little of the God, of, of the God's word in his heart. He had a lot of money. But he didn't have the Bible, at least in his heart. He might have had one. He might have had a copy at his house. He might have had some scrolls at his house. 
but it was just gathering dust. Lazarus obviously knew enough of the Bible to believe and trust in the Lord. Even though Lazarus had no money. So first thing we need to realize is that the greatest possession you have, I have in our home is the word of God. And we need to value the Bible. And when I say we need to value the Bible, I'm talking in a very practical way. We need to value the Bible not by just showing physical reverence to it. Uh, you know, some traditions, they'll never lay the Bible on the ground or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying in a practical way, we reverence the Bible by loving it, reading it, meditating on it day and night, letting it, letting it be one of the first things we hear in the morning, letting it be something that we read again at night, individually reading it, reading it as a family together, talking about the Bible, letting the Bible be a part of your daily conversation. As you talk about things in the world, as you talk about what you're seeing on television, what you're reading in the newspaper, talking about the way relationships are going on with your friends, incorporating the Bible in those discussions so that the Bible just becomes a, a very natural vehicle for the, your conversations about everything, that the scriptures begin to frame and form the whole Christian worldview. Look at the Bible as God's word. The Bible itself says that it is valuable, that it is uh, precious, more precious than fine gold, we're told. Um, there's a, a lot of... Um, Money being spent on advertising how you can make more money. And I want to suggest to you that, and, and, and it's not all bad, uh, we, do, we do need to provide for our families and think about things when we no longer have the physical, mental capacities to maybe do the work we're doing presently in this life. Uh, but nevertheless, we need to also think about you know, if, if we are willing to invest that much for a physical future, what about for eternity, for the Bible? Are we investing our time and our resources in getting to know the Bible? So as I talk about the scriptures, <clears throat> that also includes good books about the scriptures. Um, investing time and <clears throat> resources <clears throat> excuse me, in understanding the Bible. Sometimes young couples will ask me, you know, what commentary should we get as a family? Um, I would say Matthew Henry. It's probably one of the best overall commentaries. The language is a little bit archaic. Um, he wrote a couple centuries ago. Um, but there's just so much gold uh, to be found. If you need help with a particular passage that you're reading as a family, Matthew Henry is a great resource. So there's another example where we treasure um, the scriptures and, the, and those books also that speak about the scriptures help us understand it. So that is number point number one here. The word of God is of greater value than anything else you have. Uh, let me just say this, too, on that point. Uh, there is a wonderful YouTube video that I absolutely love. I've watched it several times. And that is of some Christian brothers and sisters we have in Southeast Asia who are getting a copy of uh, the Bible in their own language for the very first time. I don't know if you've seen that. 
where they open the box and they begin to distribute the Bible. Some of you are nodding. Yes, you've seen that. So uh, it, it really shows you, you know, the value of God's word to people who have never had a copy of the Bible for themselves. You know, there are stories I've read of people put in prison camps uh, who, uh, because of their faith in the Lord. And one story where um, I believe it was in back in communist China, where um, the Bible pages were used. um, I don't know how you put it delicately as bathroom tissue and how the Christians in the camp went to rescue uh, that those pieces of paper and get them clean enough uh, to be able to use so much uh, that they valued the Bible to be able to secretly read the, the Bible in the prison camp. Uh, they were going willing to go to great lengths to get into the latrine and, and to get that uh, for their soul. Um, so we in the West who have taken maybe this for granted You've got multiple copies of the scriptures. Um, Let those brothers and sisters in other parts of the world remind you how valuable your copy of the Bible really is. The Lord giveth and the Lord can taketh away. Um, And uh, and let me say that about Google, too. Those of you young people who your your Bible is confined to your phone. Remember, could be taken from you. Okay, that app may disappear uh, someday and. So don't put too much stock in the Bible just on your phone. I wouldn't put all your eggs uh, in that basket. I would make sure you have hard copies of the scriptures if tough times come. Uh, You're going to need something that you can take with you and that will be available. Number two, uh, the word of God is more important than money. Number two, um, kind of related to number one, what are you doing yourself? With the word of God. Uh, what are you doing yourself with the word of God? Do you have a plan for Bible reading? Uh, do you do you have a, a, a plan this year? Now, I'm not saying you have to use the McShane. I encourage the McShane. I, it would, I would be exceeding scripture itself if I said you had to use McShane. No, don't have to. I just encourage it. If you want one of the more aggressive Bible reading programs out there, McShane's great. Four chapters a day, roughly, get you through the Old Testament one time and the New Testament two times. But there are others out there. You could do what Lee Tracy, our most senior member of this church, 97 years old. She begins at Genesis chapter one. She reads to Revelation 22. When she gets to the end, she makes note of the date that she finished reading the Bible again and then goes back to Genesis one and does it all over again. Listen, I'm not going to argue against that if that's what you do, if that's what it is to keep you reading your Bible. Uh, I might not recommend it in terms of the ability to get old and New Testament passages uh, ongoing at the same time concurrently. But, hey, I'm not going to argue with a 97 year old woman who's still reading her Bible and she's read up to whatever, 68 times her, her Bible. And remember, Miss Lee was converted in her 60s. OK. That means she's only been reading her Bible for about 30 years. Okay, not 90 years. She's been reading her Bible for 30 years and she's gotten through it on average a little over two times a year. Uh, What are you doing with your copy of the Bible? Are you 
reading it like you should, meditating on it? Are you seeking to hide it in your heart? Is it a path to help you make decisions? Young people, you have decisions to make. Where are you going to go to school? What job would God call you to? Who do I marry? You know, how do I get guidance in these things? Well, the Bible helps me, gives me light under my path. Now, it's not going to say, you know, uh, you, uh, who am I going to pick on here? Will Petrus. You, Will Petrus, are going to Princeton, okay? It doesn't say that, okay? But, but the Bible gives us guidelines uh, and as to what we ought to be considering important as we make vocational decisions. How do I look at my gifts? What, you know, what are they going to be offering? Uh, things like this. Is this going to be a wise use of resources to spend uh, on that school, etc.? Is there a church that's going to give me good preaching? All those things. Uh, young people, the Bible is not going to say, you know, you must marry uh, Mary Sue. Okay, whoever Mary Sue is. All right. You know, it, it's not going to tell you that, but the Bible will help you say, hey, this is what you ought to be looking for, uh, for a godly helpmate. Third uh, significant point about the Bible. Uh, number one, the word of God is greater than money. Number two, what are you doing with the word of God? Number three. Um, if you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe, period. If you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe, period. So if you think Noah's Ark is fantasy or Jonah and the great fish or creation in the space of six days or, you know, a, a great number of things that the Bible teaches, um, you're never going to. Come to faith in the Lord. Uh, one of the things that the Bible itself says is that we must have a childlike faith. Now, this does not mean that the Bible goes against reason. It does not. But some of the things that the scriptures speak of are beyond our understanding. Supra-reasonable. S-U-P-R-A. Reasonable. They, they are above mere human understanding. Why? Well, because we're talking about God himself. And every time God speaks to us in his word, you have to realize he's talking to you like the Robesons talk to their son. They talk to him in, in baby talk, right? You look so cute this morning. <laughs> you little stinker. Or however they talk to their child, however you talk to the little one. You don't talk to your 18-year-old that way, I know. But, but God's, that's the way God speaks to us. And, and God has to communicate at a level that we can apprehend. I didn't say comprehend. I said apprehend. God speaks to us at a level that we can understand to some degree. And there will always be this penumbra of mystery around the Word of God. The more you understand the Bible, the more points of contact you have with what you do not understand. Does that make sense? Like an island. It's like a magical island, boys and girls, that grows. You think of the island as everything you know about the Bible and everything you know about God. And the water that surrounds the island is everything you don't know about God that God knows about himself. 
But as you grow in your understanding of the word, as your understanding of the Bible grows bigger, guess what? So does the beach around your island. The point at where there is sand meeting water grows. So the better you become acquainted with the Bible, yes, it answers many of your questions, but it also then gives you new questions and they will be better questions. And so we never come to a point where we have exhausted our understanding of God or his word. And if we and, but if we won't believe the Bible in its particulars, we won't believe it in the whole of its message. There are some who say, well, I can have faith in Jesus, but I can reject the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I can reject creation. I can reject uh, Jonah. I can reject the, the miracle, of the walls at Jericho falling down. I, I can reject the, the miracles of he- healing, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, but I can still have a, some kind of faith in Jesus, they say. And I think what we see here in our text is, no, you, you won't. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And that leads me to my fourth significant point here. And that is the failure to believe the Bible leads to a failure to believe in Christ himself. And particularly in the resurrection. Notice here what the Bible says. I think Jesus says this on purpose in his own parable here. He says, if you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, if you won't listen to even the Old Testament teachers. You will not be persuaded, even if I'll insert the word instead of someone, I'll insert the word. You will not be persuaded, even if Jesus rises from the dead. Now, in the context of the parable, he's probably closely looking at Lazarus. Even if Lazarus was to rise from the dead, you would not believe the five brothers would not believe. But we can't just stop there, can we? In light of what we know of what Jesus is going to accomplish. Christ is here, ultimately speaking of himself. That even should the son of God rise from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. If you don't believe the scriptures, you will not believe in Christ. You won't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And you will not have true faith. The Bible says that if you have true faith in God, you must believe that he was raised from the dead. You must confess with your mouth that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead is what the Bible says. And if we reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's good reason to believe you have rejected Christ himself. So those are my four significant points. The word of God is greater than money. What are you doing with the word of God? If you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe. And fourthly, failure to believe the Bible is failure to believe in Christ and in the resurrection. Now, let me make some applications as we close. A few applications. Number one, I want you and I want you young people, especially I want you to treasure the Bible. Above your other stuff. I don't know what you prize most in your collection of things or toys. Uh, But I want you to hear me this morning to prize the Bible. I know because you and I are sinners, we don't consistently prize the Bible the way we should. But I want you to hear me this morning. 
and just trust what the Bible it says about itself. That is your best possession. It's more important than any of the toys you've got in your closet. It's more important than than your house that you live in. It's more important than the car that you drive. The Bible is is the most important thing you've got. We don't know. Lazarus apparently had nothing, but he at least had the Bible in his heart. Otherwise, he couldn't have gone to heaven. And when you look at Lazarus is going to be in eternity in heaven forever and the rich man is going to be in hell forever. It's a very poor trade to give up your Bible for the things of this world. So I want you to value the Bible. It's your best possession. Read it, know it, study it. Not just because, you know, I don't read it just because I'm a preacher. Uh, and I got to get my homework from it, you know, each week. Um, I read the Bible first and foremost for my own soul. I read the I read the Bible because I want to be a better Christian. Even if I'm not a pastor, I want to be a Christian. You know, someday I may have to retire. And and, and I'm still going to be, hopefully, reading the Bible every day, reading the Bible because that's what I need. I need to feed my own soul. I need to build up my faith and my love and my trust in Jesus Christ. He's my hope. He's my treasure. He's my Alpha and my Omega. I have no hope in this life or the life to come if I don't have Christ. And I gain Christ by faith. And my faith is found by reading the scriptures. It's, my faith is built up by reading the scriptures. So tr- please treasure your Bible. Number two. Um, very similar to what I just said. Steward the word of God in your life. Use it. Um, not just have a high reverence for it, but utilize it. Number three, trust and believe the Bible in its details. We, we believe in what is called plenary inspiration. P-L-E-N. Uh, A-R-Y or something like that. Plenary inspiration. <laughs> I hope I spelled that right. Plenary inspiration. What does that mean? It means that the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God in the words of God. It's the Word of God in the words of God. So the details are important too. Not just... Some people think, well, the, the, the details are not important. The Bible's full of errors. What's important is the overall... Macro concept. What, what's important is the meta narrative. Uh, no, the Bible is important in its details for our lives. So trust with childlike faith in the details of the Bible. Number four. This is where we'll close. I want you to be committed to even the commands of the Bible, the precepts of the Bible. Because this is where the rubber meets the road in your faith. Okay, It's one thing to say, I believe. And it's another, as James points out, to believe and show your faith by doing what's in the Bible. So I, as you treasure the Bible, have reverence for it, study it, use it, believe it in its details... Do so also with regard to its precepts. The Bible says I need to do this. The Bible says remember the Sabbath day. 
And I was thinking about this this morning before church on this subject of the fourth commandment. And so many Christians today are treating the fourth commandment like it's pious advice from God. Like, hey, this is a good suggestion. Take it or leave it. You think about I was thinking about how the fourth commandment is right up there with the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are serious things. Eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Tell the truth. All of that is, is serious stuff. Murder, adultery, stealing, lying. And yeah, the Sabbath, one day of rest, worship each week. That's a command from God. It's not a holy suggestion just for, you know, to get you to the next level. Now, the details of God's word and the precepts of God's word. This is where I think it gets hard for us as Christians because we are sinners and therefore we have a, a natural inbred resistance to doing what God says to do. And this is where faith in Jesus plays out often. I don't know how many times I have seen people stand right here and take a vow before you and before God saying that they will listen to the government of this church, to the elders, should they be found delinquent in life or doctrine. And we come to them and we say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. And they ignore us. How many times we say you can't keep skipping church? They've taken a vow. They promise objection to the brethren. And the Bible says it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. That's where faith meets the road. Is doing the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank